If you have a Bible this morning, would you uh, turn with me uh, to the book of Judges? Uh, We are continuing through the story that changes everything, and this week, if you've been with us, we got through the book of Judges. Today, I want to look at the seventh chapter, about the first seven and a half verses or so, verses one through the first half of verse eight. And if you're with us and able this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all of the people with him rose early and set up camp beside the Herod Spring. Midian's camp was north of theirs in the valley of the Moray Hill. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many people on your side. If I were to hand Midian over to them, the Israelites might claim credit for themselves rather than for me, thinking we saved ourselves. So now announce in the people's hearing, anyone who is afraid or unsteady may return home from Gideon's mountain. At this, 22,000 people went home (laughs) and 10,000 were left. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many people. Take them down to the water and I will weed them out for you there. Whenever I tell you this one will go with you, he should go with you. But whenever I tell you this one won't go with you, he should not go. So he took the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Set aside those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, from those who bend down on their knees to drink. The number of men who lapped was 300, and all the rest of the people bent down on their knees to drink water with their hands to their mouths. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will rescue you and hand over the Midianites to you. Let everyone else go home. So the people gathered their supplies and trumpets, and Gideon sent all the Israelites home, but kept the 300. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. I think one of the reasons um, I love and continue to love being with young people who've been called into ministry is there's just something so delightful um, when you're a young person who has sensed the call of God and you've joined the revolution for Jesus in the world and, and they, they come to school and their tails are wagging a little bit. Like they're just excited, right? There's just something on fire, excited for what God is doing and what God has done in their life. And they're so excited to kind of launch out into ministry. And I know that there's two things that are going to happen in their life if they hang with it. And the first is they're going to at some point have to lead an actual church with actual people in it. And when they do that, some of that's going to be amazing and wonderful, and some of that's going to be not as amazing and wonderful. And it's going to come with some pretty complex problems, and sometimes that happens within the church, but it also sometimes happens because of the context where the church is in an ever-shifting culture, and how do we reach folk outside of here? And, and, it's, and there's going to be a moment where that becomes overwhelming. And the second thing that's going to happen is that you discover that not only are you dealing with other people, but you're having to deal with yourself. And at some point, you come to this realization, I'm not as gifted as I thought I was. 
And I am not sure I have all the skills necessary to fulfill this call that God has placed upon my life. And not only that, I'm not sure that I have fully developed the character necessary to lead a people either. And the question then is going to be, when that time comes, and it sometimes will come in a sudden moment, sometimes it comes over a long period of time, but when you face that moment, the question is, what are you going to do then? When that fuel, that fire, that passion that got you into this thing, what do you do when that comes to the wall? And the challenges come, both outside and within. And where do you find God in those moments? So today, if you're a guest with us, we started this thing we are calling the story that changes everything. We started in the beginning of October. Today is actually day 79, if you're following with the podcasts. And, and today, actually, we finished the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges. Um, if you haven't started yet, let me just say, we're through the hard part now. It gets fun tomorrow. Uh, we get to Ruth tomorrow and then into First and Second Samuel. Um, and so this might be a good week to jump in. But, but we've made it through these first seven books. And because um, the book of Joshua had 24 chapters and this book has 21 chapters, and we've been doing about three chapters a day, we were able to do really the end of Deuteronomy, all of Joshua, and now all of Judges in kind of consecutive weeks. And so if I could go back with you a couple of Sundays ago, we were thinking about the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is about to die, and he's giving a last speech to the children and grandchildren who came out of Egypt and who struggled through the wilderness, but now they're about to be led by Joshua and Caleb into the promised land. And so Moses gives them this amazing speech to say, center your life in God's law. Center your heart here and, and sends, them into, um, sends them into the land with a hope that they will choose life and not death. And if you were last, with us last week, we got to the wonderful um, final speech of Joshua, very similar to the speech Moses gave. Only now Joshua has led them into the land. But when they got into the land, they had all of these expectations of God is going to help us conquer the whole land. The only problem is there's a lot of people there. And so as we get into the land, in the book of Joshua, they face those challenges, those external challenges. This is a lot harder than we expected it to be. And so Joshua has to keep saying to them, be strong and courageous, trust in God. And as you live in the land, then the text from last week, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors used to serve or the gods of the people in whose land you're living. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they respond, far be it from us that we should forsake God and serve somebody else. We, for it is Yahweh, it is God who brought us and our ancestors up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We will serve Yahweh. But then this week in the book of Judges, this is where it really hits. This is really, really hard. And some of these people are really, really powerful. And if you've been with us in the book of Judges, what I love is there's this moment where the dream starts to contract a little bit. And where they begin to say, well, maybe what God wanted us to do in the land is not live in the whole land, but maybe kind of parts of the land. And maybe we can kind of settle into this section, these sections of the land, maybe not pursue the whole thing. And then... They not only face the external challenges, but when the in the book of Judges, they face all of these internal challenges of their own failures and their own character. And so 
in Judges, there's this pattern that just keeps repeating itself. And the pattern just goes like this. The, the people live in the land, and rather than kind of conquering it, they live among the people, but eventually they start to absorb the faith and traditions of these other people, and they begin to move their heart away from service to God alone. And so God allows then those people to turn upon them and begin to oppress them. And then eventually after a few years of oppression, the people cry out to God and say, we hate this God, help us. And God says, oh, okay. So he raises up a judge to deliver them. And that judge will deliver them from that oppression and then rule for a couple, two, three, maybe four decades at the most. And we'll have this time of peace, but then the judge will die and we start all over again. And it was just that constant, that constant movement, that constant pattern of failure. And in the book, there are several minor judges kind of mentioned, but there are seven big ones. And those seven judges are Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And one of the interesting things when you read the book is the judges at the beginning are a little better, are a lot better than the judges at the end. So people like Othniel and Deborah are kind of the embodiment of what a judge ought to look like. But by the time we get to Samson, yuck. And the other fascinating pattern is those judges at the beginning don't get a whole lot of text. In fact, Othniel gets, I think, just five verses. But by the time you get to the end, Samson gets four whole chapters. And so it's almost as though judges, the narrator of Judges recognizes, yeah, this is what a judge looks like. But let me really tell you where things got. And let us wrestle with how ugly this whole story has become. And so I want to talk about those judges in just a little detail. But of the seven, I want to set Deborah aside for just a moment and talk about the men. So I, I want to do something kind of risky today. And that is, as I studied judges, I realized one of the things that's true about both Joshua and judges and now moving into Ruth is the men are kind of lousy in the story. And the women are pretty good. And so some of you are going to like this sermon this morning a lot, and some of you not so much. Um, but let me start with the men, because the men are, are kind of knuckleheads. Um, it starts out okay. We get Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. As I mentioned, he gets five verses in chapter 3. And there's a problem there. The people are oppressed, and he has faith, and he goes and wins. That's basically his story. And then we get Ahud. He gets 19 whole verses, and it's a gross story. VeggieTales is never going to make a version of it. Um, if you don't know the story, go ahead and read it um, to yourself this week. Um, but it's kind of a gross story, but Ahud at least is kind of daring and bold and faithful. The next one is a guy named Barak, who God calls him up to, to take on King Jabin and the commander of his army, Sisera. And Barak, when Deborah comes to him and says, God has delivered you. This is really the, move, the, the, the turn in the story. Barak says, oh, okay, all right, I'll go. But only if you go with me, right? Like, um, I always think, it's like junior high girls going to the bathroom together, right? Like, it's, I'll go, but only if you go, right? Like, if you go with me, I'll go. So they'll go. But Deborah says to him, all right, you wimp, but, um, but because you've been so fearful, then the glory of this victory is going to go to a woman, which we assume is, is Deborah, but we'll come back to that. The next one is a guy named Jephthah, and it's a terrible story about how God calls him up, but then Jephthah makes this 
unasked for promise and a covenant that is against everything the Torah has taught the people. He makes this dumb covenant that, that if God will give him the victory, when he comes home, he'll sacrifice the first thing he sees coming out of his house, which I assume he thought would be a goat or a sheep or an ox, something like that. But instead, when he comes home, his daughter, only child, is the first one to run out to him. And the story is meant, I think, to, to bother us, that Jephthah goes through in sacrificing his daughter when God really didn't ask for this in the first place. And it's just a sign these people who are supposed to be leading God's people don't really even know God that well in the first place. And then it all kind of comes to this ugly end with Samson, who makes, who is born with this Nazarite vow which mostly includes that he won't touch dead things, he won't drink alcohol, and he won't cut his hair. But as the story progresses, he kills a lion. That's kind of cool. But then the lion, you know, bees come and make honey, and so he, he takes the honey out of this dead thing that he's not supposed to touch. He throws a big party, eats and drinks the wrong things, and then falls in love and gets a haircut and, and loses his eyes. I mean, it's a messy story, right? And so the, the whole point of these kind of men is that, that they keep moving away from God's purposes and they're drawing the people deeper and deeper into this moral mess. And then the book ends, and we're not going to look at this, but the book ends with these three chapters for today that are just horrible stories of moral decay where when you read it, it it's clear the narrator wants us to see Israel as the new Sodom and Gomorrah. And it ends with this horrible mistreatment of women. And I will say one of the interesting things in studying these first seven books is when Israel is at their best, they are caring for their women. And they're showing honor to each other. But the more deep, the more deep they become in sin, the more they mistreat others, but in particular, the more they abuse women and objectify them and misuse them. And that's where the story ends. And so the men aren't, aren't much. But then you get these women, and you get women like in Joshua, Rahab, who doesn't really even belong in the story, but when the spies end up in Jericho, she kind of says, yeah, I'll help you guys out. And without knowing much about this Yahweh, she enters in and gets engrafted into the story, and later in the genealogy of Jesus will be included. There are these wonderful women, the daughters of Zelophehad, who show up in three different books, and they are women who have lost their, the men, their brothers and their husbands. And so they, but they come and they demand the land be given to them just as though, just as if their husbands were still there. And they, they fight for their dignity and justice. They're amazing and they, they're given the land. And Deborah is amazing. She's, she's the best of the judges. She's spirit-filled. She's a prophetess. She has no fear when Barak is such a wimp. She says, all right, I'll go with you. And she leads the people with such beauty and dignity. In that story of Barak, there's this woman named Jael, who's sort of the Rahab of the book of Judges. And, and Jael is this woman who doesn't belong to Israel, but as Sisera is fleeing, he's going through this, this tent of these people who don't have a conflict with Sisera or his people, but somehow she must understand that this Yahweh, this God who is leading the Israelites, is leading them in ways of, of victory and of a fulfillment of the land. And so she invites Sisera into his tent. She gives him milk to drink. He falls asleep. She throws a rug over him and then puts a tent peg through his forehead. Again, a great Veggie Tales story. 
But she's like this embodiment of, I mean, every time I've ever preached on JL, I've said, is that crazy? Yes. But is that creative? Yes. Right? Like there's a boldness to her faith. And tomorrow we'll get into Ruth and Naomi, who are these amazing women who in the midst of all these terrible, terrible scheming men, here are these two women who embody in their care for each other the faithfulness of God. And that made me think just a little bit about the the people we will talk about this week as we go to Christmas. I love in Luke the stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary. And Zechariah and Joseph are a lot better than the guys in Judges. But they're still struggling with faith. Zechariah isn't really sure about what God is up to with he and his barren wife Elizabeth. And so he ends up being mute for a whole period of time. Joseph, the angel has to come and reassure Joseph, who's trying to figure out how to make this whole thing work. And maybe if I dismiss her, she won't be in trouble. But in the midst of all that wrangling, God breaks in and says, chill out, Joseph. It's all going to be okay. And they're wonderful at some level. But here are these two amazing women, Elizabeth, who receives this new thing that God is doing in her life and carrying John the Baptist with such joy and anticipation, but especially in in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, that great verse, when the angel comes to Mary and Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. We rightly this week celebrate that amazing act of faith on the part of a young woman to be open to what God is doing. And so if you're still with me, here's the way I think about those two groups. In some ways, the women in the story, and and I don't know if it's that the character of women is especially noble. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe we men should just get out of the way and let you women run the place. There's things. I expected an amen from my wife. I expected an amen from Diane and a couple other people maybe too. but, But I'm not sure that it's just a gender thing. But it seems to me that the story is about these men who have kind of become insiders, but who are struggling with the realities of this. And the women embody these folks who just receive what God is doing almost with a kind of openness, almost a kind of, if if you will, almost a kind of naivete that embraces this thing that God is up to. And I just so see that in Mary, this willingness to, I have no idea all that this means, but whatever you want to do, God, I invite you to do that in my life. And I think there's something really beautiful and powerful about that. But, but I want to spend just a few moments thinking about this text and about Gideon as a kind of guy in the middle of it. So Gideon does fall in the middle of these stories that get progressively worse. But the story of Gideon starts in Judges chapter 6. And Gideon starts this way. The Midianites are oppressing the people. And Gideon is threshing the barley which scholars say is supposed to be done in a wide open space, but instead he has crawled into a wine press and he is cramped in this wine press trying to thresh the barley, probably because he's terrified of the Midianites. And as he's doing this kind of thing in secret, the angel of the Lord comes to him, much like the story of Mary. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, hello, mighty warrior, which you're supposed to laugh right there. Hello, mighty warrior hiding in a wine press. To which then Gideon, in a 
in a dialogue very similar to Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, Gideon starts to say, I am the wrong guy for this job, God. Like, I'm from the smallest tribe, and I'm the youngest and least of the people of my tribe. You, you have called up the wrong person. I, I don't even know how to lead these people. And so, in chapter 6, Gideon kind of famously puts God to the test four times. The first, he, he makes a sacrifice. He kills a goat, he bakes some bread, and he puts it on a rock and steps back. And the angel goes, and the whole thing, fire, the text says, fire comes up from the rock and consumes the sacrifice. And Gideon goes, cool. And the angel says, well, now that you've seen that, here's what I would like you to do. I'd like you to tear down the bales and the asherah poles that your family has set up and that have been set up in this community. Go tear it down. And Gideon goes, all right. And so here's what Gideon does. Sets his alarm for about 2 a.m. You know, puts a stocking cap over his face, sneaks out, takes them all down in the middle of the night, hoping nobody will catch him. Well, rumors get out that uh, we had security cameras set up, and it was clearly Gideon. And sure enough, God protects him, even though everybody finds out it was Gideon who tore down the images. So two tests. So Gideon says, well, how about this? What if I put out a fleece, and in the morning, if this is really you, God, if in the morning the fleece is wet, but the ground is dry, I'll know that it's you. He wakes up, sure enough, the fleece is soaked. He has to wring it out, wrings out all the water. Pastor Grant preached in the early service this morning, had a great line about it. He said, but then at some point Gideon realizes this is just science. The dew from the ground gets on the stuff. So let's reverse it. This time I'm going to put out the fleece, but if it's dry and the ground is wet, I'll know that it's you. And sure enough, God, God kind of humbles God's self and fulfills Gideon's four signs that he needs. What happens in chapter 7 then is delightful to me. Gideon, who has continually tested God, now it's as though God says, let me give you one now, Gideon. Gideon calls up all the fighting men. He's sure God is in this now. And when he calls them up, it seems to be that Gideon's kind of overwhelmed. 32,000 men show up. They've got a serious army on their hands. Sure enough, God is in this. I can't believe it. People came to church on Christmas. 32,000 people showed up, right? Like, it's amazing. God is good. And then God says, hey, Gideon, this is way too many. I'm actually not in this part. This is way too many. If you win, you'll think you did it. So back in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a law that says if people are scared, they don't have to go to war. And so he says, how many of you are scared or you have other reasons that you shouldn't go? (laughs) 22,000 guys just walk home. Thank you for laughing when we read the text. It's meant to be funny. Gideon had 32,000 men. Now he's got 10,000. God says it's still too many. And this is indeed maybe one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's such a great thing. They go down the water. Most of them have manners. They had mothers. They learned to drink like normal people. They got down on their knees. They cupped the water. They looked around to make sure nobody was coming out. Like they were just normal. But some of them just went diving right down in the water. (laughs) Lapping up the water, just drinking it like dogs. Bless them. Um... And 
Gideon sets them aside. And so truly we are, we are meant to think of this story as both humorous but also unbelievably challenging. Gideon, who had 32,000 men just a minute ago, is now down to the 300 special ones. The 300 dog drinkers. And, and it's as though God says, now I'm in it, Gideon. And here's what you're going to do. And it really is a fascinating story. You're going to leave the swords aside. And you're going to take these three things. You're going to take trumpets and torches and jar, clay jars. And you're going to surround the Midianites. And then you're going to have a sign and you're going to blow the trumpets. And then you're going to smash the jars that are covering the torches. You're going to hold up the torches. And the most amazing thing happens. These 300 dog drinkers obey what Gideon and God has said, and the Midianites get confused, and they, they turn on each other, and the violence of the Midianites becomes self-destructive. And the Israelites are freed from oppression and get the land, but they get it in a way that they can never take credit for. Now, this is another sermon for another day. One of the tragedies in Gideon's life is this that God showed up, but it went to Gideon's head. And Gideon, later in his life, doesn't know quite how to deal with the success that God has given him. But let's not get to the bad part today. Here is Gideon, who has been shocked and surprised by God's ability to break in. If I could get just heady with you for just a couple of minutes... There's a philosopher by the name of Paul Ricoeur. And there's a, a kind of idea or phrase that he uses that has been important to me. It's what he calls a, a second naivete. A second naivete. And what he means by that is this. That oftentimes in life, we have an initial experience. A naivete. Something that changes us and transforms us in something that we encounter and it just is so amazing and we, it, it fuels us, it empowers us, it's, it's just unbelievable and, and we live into that and it's, it's just unbelievable. When, when I think about a first naivete, when Deb and I first moved to California way back in 1991, I, I needed a church job and so I took a job with, in college ministry with a, in a non-Nazarene church for just a year. But in some ways it was such an amazing year because there were three or four kids in, the, in this college group or young people's group who had grown up in church, but almost the entire rest of the 50 or so people were brand new Christians reading the Bible for the first time. They had no idea what they were supposed to do. And it was, it was wonderfully terrifying. It is so much fun to lead people through the scripture who've never read it before because they take it seriously. And they haven't learned all the ways to, you know, dismiss this part or that part. And they just ask wonderful questions. And God is so real. And they would... They were just so, such a delightful, transforming mess. God was doing such powerful things in the moment. And they would come and they would testify then. They would interrupt me in the midst of really profound sermons and lessons to share what God was doing. It was just amazing. That's that kind of first naivete. And I want to say there are some of, some of you who are in that and, and embrace it. Love this transformation that God is doing. But for probably most of us in this room... Like the book of Judges, we have come in our life to that place where, where we realize, actually, there's some real challenge to this. 
and the vision that God has given to us for our life and for the mission he would like us to serve in the world, both as individuals, but also as a community, as a church, it's big and bold and amazing, but it's really, really hard. And it's not just hard because of the external things, it's also hard because I'm not sure I'm equipped really to do this. And not just in terms of giftedness, but I'm not sure I even have the full character to lead that well or to be what God has called us to be. Are you with me? And what Rekur says then is we need to work through that and get to this place that he calls a second naivete. Now, I want to say in my own life, that has happened for me, especially in the study of Scripture. And I know, like, I am such a weird preacher in some ways because, because I, thank you, uh, because I, I have had to wrestle through, and I, I hope you understand what I mean when I say this, what the Scripture is not. You know, this, the Scripture is not a book that just got kind of dropped out of heaven. It's a complicated book written by a whole lot of people over vast periods of time and people from different perspectives. And so, so I remember the first times I was having to wrestle with coming to the realization of what the Scripture wasn't and a losing a little bit of that first naivete about it. But after I got through that, oh my word! I love this thing. In fact, let's just work through it for a whole year, three chapters a day. What do you say? Come on. <laughs> it's so much work, but it's so much fun. There's a lot of good parts about my job, but this is my favorite part, week after week, getting to discover text and talk to you about it. That's what recur means. There's a second naivete. I feel that about the scripture. Confessionally, I'm getting there in what I'll call kind of the theological aspect of my life. I feel like growing into becoming a theological talker, um, I came along with a lot of concerns about kind of bad theology. And I think rightly, a lot of my life and ministry and teaching has been about trying to trying to get some of that bad theology out of fairly naive believers. My fear at times, though, is as important as that is to get past that first naivete. That I get so busy talking about what God can't do or won't do or doesn't do, that I forget to celebrate what God does. And the unbelievable reality of a God who is present and who doesn't operate like a vending machine and who doesn't dictate our life. Like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to work through. But once you get to that, you still have to get back to this amazing thing that God is present and God may call you Gideon and scare the life out of you. And he may be willing to let you put him to the test. By the way, chapter 6 is really not about how you should throw fleeces before God all the time. That's actually not a good part of Gideon. It'd be much better if we trusted him like Mary. But part of what we celebrate during this season 
is that God is in our midst. God is always acting in surprising, unbelievable, transforming ways that if we listen and take seriously, may scare us because of what God is calling us to do and to be. And part of the delight of this season is to recapture that delight that God is calling us and inviting us to participate in God's redeeming work in the world. I'm afraid if we lose that, that like the other male judges, we just become kind of managers of the problem, shrink God's vision down to a size we can handle in our own strength, but eventually become so dead in our character dead in our faith that there's no way as mom's old friend Glafer used to say there's no way to coast except downhill <laughs> and eventually somewhere in our life or in the generations to come we end in the mess that judges ends in what I want to say today out of Gideon is it doesn't have to end there it can end in the surprise of the God who is present and the God who calls us to experience his newness. Even if that first newness was a long time ago, for the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His goodness never comes to an end. His faithfulness is new every morning, every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. And so this morning, I would love for us to close in a time of open altar prayer. I know that there are needs that are present in this room. I know that there are challenges that you bring. I know that some of you would love somebody to come and pray with you. So if you want a pastor to pray with you and anoint you this morning, if you'll come to my far left, your far right, someone will come and pray with you this morning. And if you're new, we anoint people with oil. And, and by the way, the oil itself is not anything all that special. Oil is a reminder that the Spirit of God is here. And it's a way that we use to remind us that we've invited God to act in our lives, but he, he will be faithful, but he may act in ways that surprise us, ways that make things new and transform us. So I'd invite you to do that. But if you... I, I really want you to hear my heart this morning. We cannot just become a church and a people who settle for managing our lives as best we can. Separate from the activity of God in our lives. And so I want us in this season to experience what it means to say, God, whatever you want to do in me, I, I'm willing for you to do. And that scares me because you may say, you have too many men, tell them all to go home so that what I'm about to do is something only I can do in your life, and you can't get any credit for it at all. That terrifies me. But maybe that's the place we need to be for God to do the new thing God wants to do in our life. Amen? And so if that's you this morning, I'd invite you to come as we sing this beautiful Advent hymn. Come, let's pray together this morning.
Let's pray together. There's some pastors that, um, that can help us down here. That would that would be great too. God, we are. We, we come from all sorts of different places today. Uh, some may be here who, who may be in a Christian gathering for the very first time in their whole life. Who for some reason this morning felt the draw of your spirit in this unique season we call Advent and Christmas to come and see what you are about. God, I pray that what they sense and experience today would not just be a group of people who know how to do church fairly well. Or that what they experience is not a beautiful room with candles and stained glass. I pray that they would know you, the living you, the present you, the transforming you. I pray that they would open themselves up to what you want to do in their life to forgive, to pardon, but to begin 
the beautiful work of making all things new. Oh, there's something so beautiful and powerful about not knowing a whole much, whole lot more than that, than that Jesus loves me, this I know. And that you are a God that we celebrate today, a God of love. There's something so good and powerful about that. But for probably most of us in this room, we're, we're somewhere in the journey of realizing that that love and that transformation comes with the call to be a particular kind of people and to carry a particular kind of mission in the world, one for which we are not equipped, one that is quite overwhelming, one that faces the reality of the challenges both outside of us, but also the challenges within us. And when we face those, one of two things is going to happen. We're, we're going to settle and live lives that we can manage. Or we're going to let go of those things that we need to let go of, and we're going to experience a whole second naivete a little more mature, a little more grown up, a little more experienced, but no less in love with you, no less transformed by you, no less in awe of what you might do in this moment in our midst. And so meet us here in this Advent season. Meet us as a church. Give us dreams that are more than we can manage. Give us vision that is more than we can do and get credit for. Make us open to the reality of your presence, knowing full well that will scare us to death. Because just about the time we feel like we have an army to manage it, you'll send most of them home and leave us with the dog drinkers. But that will be the moment where your spirit breaks in and where things only you can do will happen. And so empower us with that um, kind of love and hope and joy and peace today. Um, as we celebrate the innocent, unbelievable faith of Mary this week, may we also be reminded of Mary as she knelt at the cross. Having come a long way from that initial meeting with the angel, and now seeing all that your kingdom is about. Perhaps a little confused, a lot brokenhearted, but still trusting that you, the one who called Jesus to the risk of death, you are the one that also raises to new life. And so may our trust be in you today. Make us your people. I pray for those who are at this altar this morning. You know their hearts. You know what they need. And so meet them where they are today. Empower them where they are. For folks online today who, who you are present with today, may they know your transforming grace. And especially for those who've come to be anointed today, may your spirit empower them, heal them, bless them. May they know that you are there. Work in ways only you can. For we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship? Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the place.
so this week, uh, Saturday night, 5 o'clock, Christmas Eve service here. Next week, 10 a.m., 10 a.m. Uh, if you've listened well this morning as we were singing that hymn, I love singing about angels we have heard on high. I love those angels, but they don't, they don't make me quite as fearful as the one that shows up and says, greetings, mighty warrior. <laughs> if you've listened well this morning, the Spirit of God is inviting us yeah. to trust him, to experience him, to live into that. And there are challenges. But those challenges are his to help us to go through. That's why this benediction is for us this morning. Now unto him who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us, the people he calls his church, and in his son, Christ Jesus, now and for all generations. God's people said, amen. Go on, go on his peace. See you Wednesday night.